Hello, everybody. Welcome to another great BBM event. Eli Chavez Calderon here. I have the honor to have our, our great friends from Oracion and our friend Andre, who's going to introduce today's speaker. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure for uh, me to be here representing Congregation Oracion um, and in partnership with Valley Beit Midrash. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce to you today's speaker, Joel Paremba, who is a, a business attorney with more than 20 years of experience. He also has um, um, he, he also uh, has a not a personal connection to my family, but a, a university connection. We have members of our family who are alumni of uh, uh, University of California at San Diego. And today, um, I'm 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 personally in, encouraged to hear um, um, his his discussion about the memoirs of his father, um, and as a Holocaust survivor, um, and how that has had an effect on him. So, without further ado, I'd love to turn it over to our speaker today, Joel Paremba. Thank you all. Thanks, Andre, and thank you to Valley Bait Midrash for having me today, and thanks for uh, Alex and Eddie setting this up, and of course to Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Um, I'm Joel Paremba, and I'm going to take you back when I was 13 years old at my bar mitzvah. So as I was delivering my Dvar Torah, or bar mitzvah speech, um, I went ahead and boldly told the synagogue that my father was a Holocaust survivor and that one day I would share his story and do it in book form. <clears throat> the problem was I did not know my father's Holocaust story at all. Um, two years later, the shul invited me back for an aliyah and to give a short update um, and, and give a short Devar Torah. So during that speech, I again referenced my father's survival and said I would one day share it with everyone in book form. Um, after the services, during the Kiddush, uh, a regular shul goer came up to me and he said to me, uh, I was at your bar mitzvah two years ago. Uh, I'm here today and I heard what you said both then and today. And I wanna know, what have you done in the last two years to tell your father's story? Um, I was 15 and I was fairly embarrassed. Uh, I had done nothing in that regard. Uh, sure, I was only 15 years old, but it really occurred to me for the first time that you can't just say you're going to do something. You actually have to figure out what steps you need to take and then actually take those steps. Um, looking into the man's eyes as I made some silly joke about studying for my driver's exam, um, he patted me on the back and he walked right by me. He might as well have walked right through me because I was floored at not knowing what I did not know. And that is, I did not know how difficult it was gonna be to sit down with my father and then share his story. So for the next 31 years, I've chased my father around literally and figuratively to get him to open up and tell his story. Um, but he would not, like many survivors. Um, the one thing that I didn't understand, I went to Hebrew day school from kindergarten to ninth grade. So at least twice, sometimes three times a year, um, the private schools would bring in Holocaust survivors and they would share their stories and engage in a Q&A after. And I couldn't understand how it was that that these men and women who had survived 
were so open and had such large personalities, warm personalities, and how it was that they were able to share their stories. So what seemed easily, flawlessly. And then I'd go home and my father, who was a happy-go-lucky man, uh, you couldn't get him to talk about World War II, the Holocaust, or, or growing up in Poland. Um, then fast forward to 1993, he actually agreed to go see Schindler's List with me. And afterwards, uh, he let slip two personal events. He made reference to the Plashev concentration camp that was fe uh, featured in the movie and said, I was there. And before I could even start asking questions, he skipped right to, hey, uh, I used to sneak in and out of the Krakow ghetto uh, under the cover provided by the very large group known today as the Schindler's Jews, Schindler's Jews, except he said, I didn't know who they were, didn't know where they were going, just timed my coming and going to a large group coming and going so that no one could see me coming in and out of the main gate. After that, he clammed back up. But shortly after that, um, the show of visual foundation uh, was created out, out of the movie. And as we all know, they went around the world taking everyone's testimony, recording it. And my father had a handful of survivor friends from Poland that that lived in Los Angeles and, and would frequently come to the house. And all of them were like my dad. They didn't want to talk and they didn't want to revisit anything. But over the years, one by one, each one of these uh, survivor friends of my father's booked their own appointments with the Visual History Foundation and had the crews over and gave their testimony and had it video and audio recorded. My dad was the last holdout, and he said he absolutely had no interest in doing it. Then in 1998, at my son's bris, afterwards, my dad came up to me and said, I booked the Shoah History Foundation to come to the house in October. I couldn't believe it. Uh, I don't know exactly what it was at that time that, that prompted him to finally agree to do it. But if I was a betting person at the time, I would have bet that he would have canceled it. But lo and behold, in, in October 1998, he sat down with the, the what is now known as the USC Show of History Foundation and gave four hours of recorded testimony. So on that day, um, my father engaged in what can best be described as a liberation. After the exercise of, of spending over seven hours with the crew, four of which were recorded, he wanted to start talking about the Holocaust. He, it was very difficult. He cried through almost all of it, but now, now he, he saw he could make it through and he would talk about it with anyone in short spurts and in long sit down conversations. I, on the other hand, went in the opposite direction. Um, because it was such a long day in the house, um, I grew restless. I started pacing at the back of the house and the one door that separated us from where my father was being recorded uh, was an old door that had slats uh, in the middle of it, and you could easily hear what was going on in the next room. Uh, unfortunately, the two times that I actually put my head to the door to listen in, I heard two stories that I'd obviously never heard before, and it absolutely, both of them, tore holes in my heart. Um, just briefly, which I describe in more detail in the book, 
Um, I heard my father explain how in August 1942, um, when he was just 11, when all the rumors were going around about towns being uh, deported and liquidated and people put on trains, no one knew if this was true or not. My father at the age of 11, he had already had two years of experiences of of believing rumors that were going around. He was suffocating and he wanted to run away and he didn't ask my grandmother. He told her he was leaving. Um, so that ended up being the last time he saw his mother. So to hear him transport himself back to that age in 1942 um, and describe how it was he said goodbye to his mother um, was heartbreaking. Um, then, then hours later, I heard my father um, tell the story about how when um, my dad's youngest sister uh, was picked up by the Gestapo, she had been posing as a Christian Polish girl, as my father had been doing. Um, and the Gestapo, go, the Gestapo interrogated her, imprisoned her for several weeks, tortured her psychologically, emotionally, physically. And uh, he broke down explaining all of that. And uh, after that, after hearing those two stories, I had decided I did not want any part of this. And I, I did not want to hear anything more because I knew there was much worse. Because my father's family, over 400 members of my father's family on both sides were murdered during the Holocaust. And his parents and three out of his four sisters were slaughtered. So I definitely didn't want to hear anything more. It, the, the actual exercise of having the Shoah Foundation in the house was at that time, not good for me, but very good for my father. It didn't uh, occur to me that time was running out until just 2018, just four years ago, when I finally took my first trip to Israel with a group called Momentum Men. And I had no intention of really resolving these issues on this trip. Everything simply unfolded on its own. Um, I came in contact with some amazing leaders on this tour, uh, one of which was my own personal rabbi who accompanied uh, all of us from Orange County, California, Rabbi Israel Siner. And one of the things that, that we discussed is I revealed to him that, as everyone understands, what survival guilt is. My father certainly had it. Why did I survive? But my, my, my family didn't. Why did I make it through? But other Jews who who did much more than I did not. Um, for me, as a second generation, I had something different that I called birth guilt. And that is this. I couldn't understand how it was uh, th that I was born. Because if it wasn't for the Holocaust, I wouldn't have been born. Because what Jew living south of Krakow, which inarguably was the Jerusalem north of the world, Back, back in the 1930s, um, without the modern state of Israel, uh, the center of the Jewish world, which Pol what Polish Jew would leave and come to the United States? Not many did, um, but it took the Holocaust and, and it took my father an additional six years to get out of Europe to come to New York for that to occur. Obviously, he then met my mother in Los Angeles and I was born and it's always bothered me that I perceive myself as a product of the Holocaust. And when I explained this to my rabbi, he said, you have to change your, your manner of thinking. You are not the product of a tragedy. You are the product of your father's triumph. 
So the rest of my trip in Israel in 2018 went along those lines. I was forced to redefine how I had been feeling, uh, what my connection was to the Holocaust, um, and, and my relationship with my father. So when I came back, it still took me another six months to reconcile how, how I was going to make good on my bar mitzvah promise. So uh, in 2019, <clears throat> without announcing anything, I just sat down and watched <clears throat> four hours of my father's testimony. Um, it was very difficult to get through. It took me two nights. Um, afterwards, I called my father up and I said, you're not going to believe it, but I, I watched the video. And he said, you are the only one who has watched it in the entire family because no one wanted to, no one could. Um, but after that, I said, I have questions. So we met for over 10 hours, most of which I, I recorded by audio. I took scrupulous notes and I put it aside. And truly, I wasn't still ready to face this. Um, and I don't know, the truth is, if it wasn't for the COVID lockdowns uh, where I had absolutely nowhere to run and hide anymore, I don't know that I would have moved forward. But with everything locked down here in California, I finally started transcribing all the audio and all the video. And then I had my source material and I began digging in. And uh, it was difficult, um, but I had a draft within the first six months that I showed my father. Um, but interestingly, uh, my father then fell ill um, in uh, in 2021, and it sort of became a race that I needed to get the book out and hand it to him physically so he knew that it was done. Um, and I was able to accomplish that. But uh, as I'll explain later when I go through a, a brief slideshow, um, after my father passed in October, I dug back in and, and added uh, 15 pages to the soft cover. Um, and 13 photographs, uh, which I consider to be evidence of, of various crimes against humanity committed in my father's town in Velichka, Poland. And then I put out uh, a hardcover edition with that extra content. So, um, you know, one of the questions I get often is, uh, how is it that your father survived? And without giving away the, the major themes of the book, it really started with what I call the four no's. Um, after Kristallnacht in November 1938, you know, right next door is Poland. And of course, the, the Jewish Polish community began wondering, is this going to happen here in Poland? Uh, is, is Germany going to invade Poland? Are they going to uh, put their Nuremberg laws on us? Should we leave? These discussions were had over the next six to eight months. Um, my father's family didn't say anything to each other until Passover 1939. Um, and at that point, my grandmother said to my grandfather, why don't you take the five kids and go to New York? Just leave. Um, I cannot because my mother is feeble. And when she passes, I'll join the rest of you. Well, my grandfather said emphatically, no, I'm not leaving the family behind. Um, I don't think anything bad is going to happen with Germany. Um, when, when your mother passes, we'll, we'll revisit it then. Um, then September 1st, 1939, the Germans invaded Poland. And the first thing my grandmother said to my grandfather was, you need to leave. They're, they're targeting 
men. Uh, at this point, no one said anything about Jewish men. It was just they're targeting military age men, um, both if if they're resisting and fighting or for for labor to help in the German war effort. So you should run. And again, my grandfather said no. Six days later, the Wehrmacht rolled into my father's town, um, Velichka, which is uh, just eight miles southeast of Krakow. Um, and again, my grandmother said, you need to go into hiding. They're, they're going to round up men, I'm telling you. And at that point, Velichka became known as a city of no men. Many of the Jewish men fled the town for the exact reason that my grandmother was encouraging my grandfather to do. But he was not going to abandon his family. My grandfather was not afraid of standing up to anti-Semites. He had been doing it for 15, 20 years in Velichka, um, all of which I detail is a prelude to the Holocaust. Um, he was not going to run from this either. Five days later, um, after five days of roundups and humiliating events that occurred in Velichka, which I'll share with you in a slideshow, um, my grandmother caught wind that they were, that the Germans and the Poles had put together some kind of a list and were rounding up men, Jewish men on that list. And she said for the fourth time, run to the forest. There aren't very many Jewish men here left. Go, just go. But my grandfather had already decided three times previous he was not going to abandon his family, so he didn't. Um, and that led to my father, my grandfather being rounded up um, and with 31 other Jewish men, um, they were told publicly they were being taken out for the day um, for a labor job and that they would be back by nightfall. Um, but all the Jewish men were rounded up taken to a forest, lined up, and gunned down. My father was nine years old. Um, his entire childhood was ended on that day, September 12, 1939. And what did my father learn from this? He learned that whatever the Germans and the Poles say and do, that he should do the opposite. Uh, he watched his own father not run. He watched his own father stand in defiance. And even though my grandfather had taught my father when to fight and when to stand up and when not to, my father at the age of nine just went into survival mode literally on that day on September 12, 1939. And he would spend the next six years running. And that is, is exactly what ended up saving him. Um, let me switch to the topic of trauma. Um, I spent my entire childhood and uh, early adulthood hearing about trauma to the children of uh, Holocaust survivors. And I, I could never really wrap my head around it. Um, I, I had what I would like to think a fairly normal childhood. There was nothing that, that I wanted for. Um, and it just didn't make any sense to me. I had heard about trauma experienced by other second generation children, but I really couldn't see how that would apply to me. Well, that was a bit of naivete on my part because once I opened up the proverbial Pandora's box and watched my father show a foundation video, it wasn't to the very end of the interview that something really dawned on me. At the end of the interview, the interviewer asked my father to sort of 
emote and start sharing various feelings. And a lot of anger came out and most of it was directed at his Polish neighbors that participated in such high level anti-Semitism and complicity with the Germans, um, which inevitably led to my grandfather being caught um, by the help of his Polish neighbors. But then at the very end of that, he said that the Nazis had stolen his childhood. And it then occurred to me that back when I was 13 years old, on a summer day, I was playing in the backyard with my brother and a very close friend. Um, we were very into whatever it was that we were playing with. And my father came out and said goodbye because he was going to work. And uh, neither, neither of the three of us responded or even looked at him. He repeated, goodbye, guys. I'm, I'm going to work. Have a great day. And the three of us again ignored him. My father then turned to walk away and I peeked up to see what his reaction was and I saw nothing but his backside. He then looked over his shoulder and he said, none of you would have survived. And I knew exactly what that meant. He was saying, none of you would have survived the Holocaust like I did. And I'm 13, so I couldn't really understand why he would say that um, other than the obvious fact that we had ignored him. And I sort of took that on to myself because it really wasn't incumbent upon uh, our close friend to break the silence and say goodbye. Um, it wasn't really, I felt, on my brother, who was younger than me, to, to say anything. I felt responsible. Um, and I carried that for quite some time. And then as I got older and I'm in college and I'm in law school, uh, I thought, did, did the punishment really fit the crime? Did being told you would never survive um, really warrant uh, being said uh, if I had ignored my father as he was leaving for the day for work? And I concluded no, um, but I knew there was probably something more behind it. But as I buried all my feelings uh, post uh, 1998, when he gave the interview, I realized there's probably a lot I don't know and cannot explain. But after watching his video, things started to catch up with me. But then I realized when he said that in the video that his childhood was stolen from me. My father didn't have his childhood. He had to survive his, whereas I played my way through mine. And I'm sure in that particular moment, as he was getting no attention, saying goodbye, um, he saw that how into our playing we were um, and I'm sure it bothered him because he did not have that after the age of nine. Um, so at that point, I realized that there was a lot more to the whole trauma um, suffered by uh, second generation children. Um, but I don't think I suffered it uh, to any extent that other people did. Um, oddly enough, it wasn't until my dad's 80s. My dad died at, at 91 and a half. In his 80s, he, my mom would tell me that uh, he would elbow her in the middle of the night and, and shout out. Um, and then when he would wake up the next morning, he would explain to my mother that he was being chased by Germans and he was trying to get away. And in some dreams, he was caught and in other dreams, he wasn't. Um, and he just remembered being tied up and marched somewhere. So in in bed he was always flailing away and but this didn't happen until his 80s 
So between that and, and the incident where he said, I don't think none of you would have survived, um, I couldn't really remember anything else that had occurred um, in my childhood that, that could be classified as, as trauma foisted on a second generation, because I certainly didn't feel that way growing up, not, not to take away from any other 2G uh, kids who, who definitely did. Um, let me share with you. So this is the the cover of the hard. This is the hardcover edition of the book where I added uh, fifteen pages and thirteen more photographs. This was this is the photograph that was besides my beside my father's nightstand for my entire life. And at the age of five, uh, I went up to my dad and said, "Who are these people?" And he explained, "That's that's." my father and my mother on the left and right ends and my three sisters in the background and me in front is the only boy with my youngest sister and i couldn't understand i had so much family on my mother's side um, why is it these people weren't around so my dad just said simply they were killed and with the exception of my dad's sister sitting next to him she survived with him but felicia she died in uh, 1961 of uh, uterine cancer so I did not meet her. Um, so I had a, an understanding at a, a very early age that something was not right. I, I didn't really understand what they were killed meant, but it sounded to me like they didn't die of natural causes and that someone else had caused this. Um, this is what before the war, my dad's town was most famously known for, uh, the salt mine of Velichka. And uh, this is a, approximately 1911. Um, and this is actually a photograph of the same mine. Everything you see here is made of salt. And this was actually taken between 1940 and 1945. So you can see over time, the mine was constantly being turned into an art piece in addition to um, being mined for its valuable salt. Um, but the irony here is that look how beautiful this was being developed into, and this is somewhere between 40 and 45 with, with what's going on above ground. This is what's going on below ground. This is my father's shul um, uh, that this is a post-war photograph. Um, the shul was desecrated by the Germans um, on September 7th when they entered the town and uh, uh, they actually used their horses to store inside the shul. Um, and to this day, it stands in disrepair just like this. And it's just a warehouse. It's never been resurrected or reconsecrated as a shul. Um, but then again, it is Poland and they're not really into uh, uh, rededicating a shul from uh, the Holocaust era, at least has been my experience. Um, this is actually a photograph from May 1939 of the uh, young Zionist movement in my father's town, Velichka, which, you know, it, it was a small town of about 8,000 people, half of which were Jewish. Um, but you, you wouldn't have known it if you visited it because of the virulent anti-Semitism um, for the 20 years before the Holocaust. But uh, the record should show that there was a youth Zionist movement in Velichka. 
before the war. This is the center of the town. It's Market Square on Reinick Gorney Street. And this is a photograph uh, from the early 1900s. And the reason I want to show it to you is because I want to condition you to the architecture of the building with the steeple. Um, this is the same building, the same marketplace uh, in the late 1920s. Um, this is where di different vendors would market and sell their wares. However, that's the same set of buildings behind. Um, this is a photograph that I found after I published the softcover edition. It is a photo of 43 men that have been lined up by the German Wehrmacht, and the date is between September 7th and the 11th, 1939. And as you can see, it's all men. Most of them have beards. Uh, in 1930s Poland, most men were clean shaven, um, which is further evidence that they targeted just Orthodox observant Jews. And when I blow the photograph up and zoom in, those blue arrows show you the German Wehrmacht as they appeared on during that range of September 7th to the 11th. The, Thickest arrow is a gentleman that has black uh, SS bands on his collar. And it's probably hard for you to see, but when I blow this up even further on my computer, almost all the German officers and infantrymen are smiling, um, which was very common uh, in photographs taken by the Wehrmacht uh, when they would humiliate Jews and torture Jews. They would always take pictures of themselves smiling in front of Jews. This is another photograph that was taken by the Wehrmacht between September 7th and 11th, 1939. It's another incident where they were rounding up Orthodox Jews, making them sweep the road. And the one man that has a bucket, um, my father told me that the Germans, since they came on horseback into Velichka, there was so much horse dung all around the streets, they would have the Jews pick, it, pick up the horse dung by hand and put them in buckets. And if there weren't enough buckets, they had to put the horse dung in their pockets. Um, those are my father's Polish neighbors behind watching. Uh, this became a ritual between the day of invasion uh, on September 7th and the 11th. Poles got a kick out of this and they would it was it became an afternoon event and my father witnessed all of this um this is during the same time period germans cutting the religious payas off of a, an observant jewish male and you can kind of see through one of the truck's windows polish neighbors coming for a show this picture however I know for a fact is September 12th, 1939. And what you're looking at here is the actual beginnings of the roundup where they rounded up 32 Jewish men, one of which was my grandfather. Um, they were loaded onto trucks, the trucks taken to a forest and they were lined up and shot. And as you can see, there's a heavier presence on this day of uh, Poles watching. Um, I was just in Israel this past June and July and I had been to Yad Vashem once before um, during the trip that I discussed during in 2018. 
And on one of the walls, unbeknownst to me, this photograph is there. It is under a section called forced labor. And as, as I explained to our guide, that is not what was going on in this photograph. Um, they, the Germans had lied and said that they were going to be taken away for a hard labor job. But while they were waiting for the trucks to arrive to haul 32 Jewish men away, uh, they handed them brooms because they had conditioned them to doing this for the previous five days. Uh, and no one really understood that there was going to be a mass murder committed, but that had been in the works since the invasion. And you have to remember, this is September 12th. Hardly anyone knew what the Germans had in store. Um, the Eidsatze Gruppen had not been just distributed throughout Europe to do mobile killing units and Holocaust by bullets. None of that was in effect yet. All that had been invaded was Poland and at by the 12th, it's about half half of Poland had been taken over. The idea that Jews would be rounded up and taken away somewhere and gunned down was fairly foreign uh, and unheard of and nothing you could guard against because it hadn't happened yet. Um, when I blow this picture up, if you look to the far right, um, that's just another Jew that's being dragged or pushed in by two Germans um, into the center there. These, this photo taken by the Wehrmacht um, was probably taken minutes, maybe hours before my grandfather was found and brought to the same center. Um, the list of 32 men was put together by the Polish municipality in charge at City Hall. Uh, they had recruited a poll to help them put together the list. And people were shocked that the Germans only being in my dad's town for five days, how they could have come up with a list so fast. It was because they recruited Poles to help make out the list because they knew who the quote troublemakers were or resistors might be. And even though I, I told you most men had left Fidlichka at this time, um, a lot of Orthodox didn't and neither did my grandfather. And these were literally the last 32 Jewish men alive left in Velichka. Um, so that's how the list was compiled. This is actually a postcard of the train station in my dad's town. Um, at, at the bottom, you can see Velichka and the date of January 1904. And the reason why I have this in the book is fairly significant because from this train station, several important things happened. Uh, with respect to my father's story. One, it is the train station that Velichka Jews were trained to the death camp Balzac, um, which is likely how my grandmother and three of my dad's sisters were murdered. Um, some of the Jews were gunned down on that fateful day in August of 1942, um, when the Germans grew tired of uh, putting Jews on trains, they slaughtered the last seven, 800 uh, at the train station. The second significant thing about the train station is before these deportations, my father traveled around posing as a non-Jew um, for three years without any papers. He refused to wear the, the Jewish uh, Star of David armband. And uh, because he was light-skinned with light hair and blue eyes, and the town was overcrowded with people fleeing from the north, uh, my father was able to blend in as a small 
nine-year-old and he would boldly just go to this train station buy a ticket and he was engaging in what was really a dry run for his survival he was taking a train to Miehov, to Boknia, to Krakow just wandering around seeing what he could get away with at the same time he was shopping for food because Jews were not really allowed to buy food in markets but my father did in order to keep his family fed until he fled in 1942. Um, this is what the back of the same train station looks like today it's abandoned um, there's no memorial or plaque there which is what most of Poland looks like there was so much atrocity committed throughout Poland and Poles don't want to be reminded of it and which is kind of odd because you would think the Germans did it but everybody knows that the Poles were complicit with the Germans in many many instances and this is why they do not mark um, areas of significance um, in great number because they don't want to be reminded and they also want to whitewash history and there was a great atrocity committed at this train station and the Polish police helped seal off the city for the Germans the day of the deportation and the, the, the slaughter at the train station. This is what it looks like today from the front. Again, abandoned. They don't replace it and there's no memorialization that whatever happened there. This is uh, one of the only known photographs of the Miehov ghetto, um, a town north of Krakow. Um, my dad stuck in and out of this ghetto several times when he had nowhere to hide, nowhere to live, nowhere to seek shelter. Um, and then this is a photo. There are very few of the Boknia ghetto, which is to the east of Krakow. Um, this was the second ghetto my father would sneak in and out of. Um, and oddly, every time my father snuck in and out of the Miehov and the Boknia ghettos, he either would sneak out right before there was a liquidation, which he didn't know was going to happen, or he would sneak in right after a liquidation, not knowing it had just happened. These are the uh, main gates of the Krakow ghetto. You might recognize it from uh, the movie Schindler's List. These are the very gates that the Schindler Jews would walk in and out of that my father also snuck in and out of under the cover of their great number, which provided him that kind of cover. And like the Boknia and uh, Miehov ghettos before, he left the Krakow ghetto right before its liquidation in uh, early 1942. Um, without giving away the, the core and heart of my father's story, um, my father ended up on a farm for the last three years of the war. Um, he thought he was carefully hiding and working there as a non-Jew. Um, but unbeknownst to him, up the road from the farm, there was a reconstituted World War I German fortress um, that he had to provide daily dairy products to as part of his job. So he thought he had escaped Krakow um, and he thought running away to the countryside would, would get him uh, better results without being stopped by the Gestapo, which happened uh, in Krakow, um, only to arrive at this town called Babitza um, north of Krakow, um, only to find out that he had to bring products on a daily basis to a, the German contingency uh, at this fortress. And these are modern day photos of what that fortress looked like 
again, World War One fortress that the Germans were using in World War II um, as a potential defensive line, um, which ended up happening in early 45 when the, my father witnessed the Russians and Germans fighting at this uh, particular fortress. This, uh, this map I recently put in the book, uh, every dot is a ghetto. Um, and the black arrows I drew here are the three uh, towns and ghettos that my dad zigzagged in and out of. Um, and you can see Velichka just a bit southeast of Krakow. That's what my dad looked like. Uh, it's a screenshot of um, uh, the day that he gave the Shoah Foundation interview. Um, I'm not allowed to show any footage from it. Uh, it, it is their intellectual property. Um, but I am allowed to take a, a little snippet of it. And at the end of the four hours, they, uh, they asked my mother, my brother, myself, my wife, and my son to be on camera uh, and answer a few questions. So we did. And I should note that uh, um, I'm currently working on a documentary uh, that'll parallel the book, um, working uh, with several Hollywood people that, that do this. And it's been a long road, but they've been able to acquire a license to be able to use the audio and video um, for my dad's interview in the uh, documentary. So I'm still not allowed to do it on a personal level, so I don't, um, but some of it will be in, um, in the documentary. Um, again, I'm returning to the uh, cover of the book because I want to isolate on the photograph of my father that I used. This photograph is my dad in Budapest, Hungary in 1945, just after the Holocaust. And that is a face that I did not know uh, growing up. Um, it is a face that shows bewilderment, loss and confusion. And that is not the man that I knew. Um, that's my father in 1948 uh, in Belgium. This is the, the face of the father that I grew up with. That's that's my father on the SS Washington in 1951 when the United States and the UN created the Displaced Persons Act and my father finally had a passport, a, a Belgian passport to be able to come to the United States. I spent an entire chapter on this in the book. People don't realize, everyone thinks when the Holocaust ended, Jews were immediately able to come to the United States. They were not. Um, it's a fact, no one in Europe wanted displaced refugee Jews. Um, and then when Jews in Europe looked beyond Europe, the same was true all over South America and North America. No one wanted the Jews. And my dad didn't have a passport anymore. He didn't have his birth certificate from, from Poland. Um, he had been running around on false papers. So how was he going to get a real legitimate passport to get into the United States? It took six years before the Displaced Persons Act was was uh, passed. And like I said, he was issued a Belgian passport and uh, that's him on the boat. And at the end of the trip, that's a photo of him obviously passing Ellis Island in the Statue of Liberty. And this is my dad's sister that survived with him, Felicia Paremba. Um, she married, had one child, and 
and she died uh, in 61. And that's a photograph of my parents shortly before they got married. And that is me with my father the day after my bar mitzvah. Uh, back then they had a reception the day after. Um, and to think that the day before this photograph was taken, I announced to the world I was going to write a book. I, I had no clue how I was going to do it or if I was going to do it or what I was going to go through to be able to do it. But um, you wouldn't have known looking at me because I was just kicking something under the rug that I didn't think I was ever going to have to deal with. And there's uh, my father and I on the date of my wedding in 1996. So this is two years before my father agreed to finally have the USC Show Foundation over. And that's my father and my mom at uh, my son's bar mitzvah. And then at my daughter's bar mitzvah. And then all six of us on the date of my daughter's bar mitzvah reception. So the point is, my father was able to continue Jewish life. Um, he sent both of his kids to Jewish day schools and my wife and I did the same thing um, with our two kids. We sent them to Jewish day schools and uh, both of our kids have uh, done the uh, Poland and Israel trip. I, I have not been to Poland um, for various reasons. Um, I haven't exactly come to terms with wanting to do that, um, but lo and behold, my wife and I sent both our kids on, on their own respective Poland Israel trips. So I learned more from them um, when they returned and that ended up springboarding into helping me come to terms and sit down and write this book. So I just want to leave you with uh, this quote that uh, author Primo Levi uh, wrote in one of his books, which then Simon Wiesenthal paraphrased in his book, The Drowned and the Saved. Um, as you know, Simon Wiesenthal survived three different camps, uh, Janowska, Plashov, which my father was in, and Gross Rosen. And between his experiences at all three camps, Simon Wiesenthal, he explained what the SS officers would usually tell Jews when they were brought in um, to replace Jews who had died in the role of performing hard labor. Wiesenthal wrote, however, this is what Nazi officers would, would taunt Jews with. However, this war may end, we have won the war against you. None of you will be left to bear witness. But even if some of you survive, the world will not believe you. There will perhaps be suspicions, discussions, research by historians, but there will be no certainties because we will destroy the evidence together with you. And even if some proof should remain and some of you survive, people will say that the events that you describe are too monstrous to be believed. They will say they are exaggerations of allied propaganda and will instead believe us who will deny everything and not you. We will be the ones to dictate the history. Well, that ended up being wrong. Um, hundreds of thousands of, of survivors have shared their stories. Uh, thousands have shared their memoirs and I've done the same. Um, my, my motivation for doing it is, is shared in the epilogue of the book. Um, but one of the, one of the biggest driving forces for me has been to confront Polish complicity and denial. Um, I go into great deal of detail about that, um, in explaining, um, the antisemitism that my father faced 
before and during, but more as importantly, after the Holocaust, when he returned to his town, it absolutely unbelievable. Um, again, I want to thank Valley Bait Midrash for having me, and uh, I would be happy to entertain any questions or comments. Thank you so much. Friends, you can go ahead and unmute now and ask questions. Go ahead, Lauren. I want to thank you for um, bearing witness. My, my father was also a survivor and he was from Krakow also. And I don't know how many people know that the Poles were actually killing Jews after the war. My father was with um, a Garin that was supposed to make Aliyah and it turned out they were going by truck to Lvov to meet with other people. And my father took the train because he had bought the ticket. His friends never made it. They were murdered by Poles after the war. Um, I wanted my father to give his story to the Spielberg group, but he, he wouldn't. And I think part of it was survivor's guilt. He, I, I find a lot of the ones who were not in concentration camps, my father spread, went eastward and he wound up in the Gulag. Um, they wouldn't tell those stories. He told the story to me, but he wouldn't test he, he, he wouldn't um, do it on tape. But thank you so much for bearing witness. And the story has to keep being told over and over and over again. Thanks. You're welcome. It's my honor. And I, I feel your father's pain because I, I lived with that. Um, my father didn't want to talk about it either for I mean, if you do the math, my dad survives in 45 and he finally sits down in 98. So that's a long time not wanting to talk. Um, and then the effect of it, like I discussed, is when I heard two little stories, I couldn't deal with it and I didn't want to hear anymore. So I certainly wasn't going to help him tell his story, but um, I understand where your father was coming from. And this, my father was a flight survivor. Um, sounds like your, your father was too. And this was the most common way to survive. Not the easiest, very little to no help, no connections, no money, no power, and just improvising on a daily basis for six long years. Um, but that is how mo most of the Jews survived. And so my father's story is your father's story and the majority of survivors story where sheer will and sheer luck are the reasons that they made it. Hi. 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 Um, I'm just um, thinking of um, uh, uh, Victor Frankel and looking at the pictures of your father and your aunt Felicia and just how beautiful they were. Like it, so just thinking about, you know, just what I've read and the story that you've shared with us and everything, it's just for me, I just, was there talk about how your father and your aunt Felicia ever smiled again, how they ever looked that beautiful again? Yeah, I'm not a psychologist to be able to give you a qualified answer. Um, mm -hmm. Didn't meet my aunt, um, but my father was so happy-go-lucky mm -hmm. 
nothing on his sleeve told you what he went through or what he was. Um, I'll share another trauma issue. Mm-hmm. When it, my father had a very heavy Eastern European accent, when you would meet him, it was obvious he was not from the United States. And most people would say, where are you from? And because my father didn't want to talk about the past, he would just say, I'm from New York. But people would give him a look like, you don't sound like you're from New York. Why are you saying that? Well, he wasn't going to explain that. Well, I'm really a Holocaust survivor and I don't want to talk about it. So yeah, I'm from New York. I grew up seeing and feeling that awkwardness my entire life. Um, but it's taken me this long to understand if he didn't want to talk about it to us, why was he going to talk about it to a stranger or an acquaintance saying, Hey, where are you from? Um, I'm from New York. And you know, it was embarrassing for me growing up because obviously he didn't sound New York like a New Yorker. So couldn't understand why he kept saying that he wasn't fooling anyone, but, um, he did smile. I mean, my dad was a, a ripoff artist of vaudeville. And this is how he would entertain my brother and I without us knowing what vaudeville was. And he he took that humor and that's the humor he used in the house. Um, he was just, he was a funny guy um, and he left it all behind um, until the day he gave the interview, but it was very difficult, but he, he was still the same person afterwards other than he now wanted to talk. Thank you. And Lauren is commenting that her father never smiled or laughed. Yeah, I understand that. And like I said earlier, you know, I'm going to Hebrew private schools. I have access to dozens of survivors. They're all bigger than life, smiling, happy people, um, open, wanting to share. Um, but my father's not. And what I realized, Lauren, is everyone has different DNA and everyone is going to deal with the trauma and loss differently. I mean, I would, you would. So I don't begrudge any any survivor that was closed off for for those reasons. Um, everyone's completely different. And I don't judge anyone for being open or closed off. Uh, I understand the horror. Um, it's not if you don't want to share it, I completely get it. And the reason is this, I put it on on the front page of, of, of my website. My father didn't want to talk about this because he didn't want people to see him as a victim. He didn't want people to see him at his lowest when he had no power or control over his life, the trajectory. So for him to talk about it reveals, I'm, I can't, I have no say in my life. It's, it's gotta be the worst and it is the worst feeling. I have a question, Joel. Do you find yourself, um, and I've, I've asked this question to other um, Holocaust survivors that I've had the honor to be able to talk to, um, do you find yourself having a certain hate still towards the Polish? Um, I, I, I don't want to use the word hate, but because um, certainly Poland has come far. Um, I don't think they do the Holocaust education and openness that the Germans do. Um, 
but I, I would say in, in answering your question directly, I definitely feel that one of the end uh, chapters of the book, I, I'm going to use the word indict. I, I present everything that they did that my father witnessed. And this was just done to one man and his family. It's, it's, it's an exemplar of what was done to 3 million Polish Jews. Um, my father's experiences in his town before, after, and during. There's not one survivor that didn't see or experience the exact same thing. So um, I won't go so far as to use the word hate, but I definitely indict them in my book at the end. Joel, I'm, I'm curious as to um, if, if you could share what, what you can about your, your children um, visiting Poland and, and their reaction um, and compare it to your reluctance to go, which, which I understand, and, and, and what you, how you reacted to their visit. It, it's, <clears throat> it's a complicated answer. Um, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and as the son of a Holocaust survivor, it was, it was always, shh, don't wear your Jewishness on your sleeve. You don't want anyone to know. Um, my kids had the benefit of being that much further separated in time. And not to criticize, but the Hebrew day schools I went to were the same as my parents. Low key, uh, let's not talk about being Jewish. Let's not wave it around. My kids, schools that I sent them to, again, a generation or two removed, very open, very proud of being Jewish. So um, when they went, they always start in Poland first to get the melancholy out of the way. And then you go to Israel where there's strength and life. Um, they're much more open about things than I am. Um, they're much more matter of fact and less nuanced th than I am. Um, but I know no different, you know, because I grew up in a house where we couldn't and we didn't talk about it. Um, I tried to bait my dad for 31 years. I would watch every Holocaust documentary, movie, docudrama, in an attempt to get my father involved. I would say, hey, did you see this? Uh, what do you think about this? Or what where were you when this happened? Never would take the bait. Um, in my house, when my kids would try to engage me, I would tell them everything I knew, which wasn't much. Um, so it was different. You know, I tried to be receptive to my kids and tell them everything I did know. Um, my dad, definitely not. So it's a generational thing. I mean, the further we get away from it, the more we have to educate, but the further we get away from it, the less trauma there is passed down um, for, to generation after generation. But I went ahead and dropped my author website in the chat. Um, you can get a lot more of my dad's story uh, on the website. And uh, if I'm honored enough, maybe you'll go to Amazon and, and buy the hardcover book to get the details of what my dad went through. Awesome. Thank you so much to our partner, Sion, And thank you so much to our great friend, Joel, for an amazing presentation. Everybody have an amazing day. Take care. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks, Andre. Thank you, everyone.